Welcome to the podcast of the New York Academy of Sciences, driving positive change through collective action in science and technology. Today on the podcast, instead of talking about a particular topic in science, we're going to talk about science in general and how it's perceived by the public. A few months ago, at the end of the Democratic National Convention, Hillary Clinton got up to give a long speech to officially accept the party's nomination for president. And in the middle of that speech, there was a quick moment that was really kind of strange. And I believe in science. <laughs> Why would a candidate for president feel the need to say something like that? The thing about science is that belief in the way she's using the word doesn't really apply. When you do a scientific experiment, it either works or it doesn't. It's objective. It doesn't really matter whether you believe in it. But of course, we all know what she's refuting by making that declaration. Science is seen by many of us in a completely different way. It's seen as a set of credos that you accept or reject like the tenets of a religion. And again and again, we've heard politicians and celebrities say that they don't care what the evidence says because it doesn't agree with what they believe. By way of example, here's a handful of clips taken from public speeches by successful U.S. politicians. Mr. Speaker, I believe that God created the known universe, the earth and everything in it, including man. And I also believe that someday scientists will come to see that only the theory of intelligent design provides even a remotely rational explanation for the known universe. But until that day comes, and I... The truth is, no people don't science, want to believe in God, and so they'll find any reason. Mm -hmm. That's the whole concept of uh, uh, evolution, the whole concept of the scientific method, the whole concept of anything that they can do to prove that there's no God. Right. Including whole what programs that claim well, the, the, actually, the Genesis 8.22 that I use in there is as long as the earth remains, there will be springtime, harvest, cold and heat, winter and summer, day and night. My point is, God's still up there. And this is, is the arrogance of people who think that we, human beings, would be able to change what he is doing in the climate is, to me, outrageous. Come to understand that all this stuff I was taught about evolution, embryology, Big Bang Theory, all that is lies straight from the pit of hell. And it's lies to try to keep me and all the folks who are taught that from understanding that they need a savior. Speaking there were, in reverse order, Paul Brown, congressman from Georgia's 10th district from 2007 to 2015, speaking at a church banquet in 2012. Jim Inhofe, current U.S. Senator from Oklahoma, speaking on a radio show called Crosstalk, also in 2012. Pat Robertson, who won primaries in four states when he ran for president in 1988, speaking on his television show The 700 Club, which has been on the air every day since 1966. And Mike Pence, currently the governor of Indiana and Republican candidate for vice president, speaking on the floor of the House of Representatives back in 2002 when he was a congressman. And these clips are problematic because they're examples of very public, very powerful people completely misunderstanding what science is and what it's trying to accomplish. In a real way, to say science believes this thing, which is a lie, is nonsense. 
science can't really lie about things because it never really claims to know the absolute truth about anything. A scientist only knows what data came out of the latest study or experiment and what current theory seems to fit that data. And so what science understands is constantly shifting and developing as people do new experiments and discover new things. And this misunderstanding exists in one form or another on just about every level, starting with the way science is often taught in schools. Here's Dr. Megan Groom, the Academy's Senior Vice President for Education. Science isn't the pursuit of memorization. It's the pursuit of understanding what we don't know and then picking a question that really excites you and just running at it full force. And that every time you ask a question and answer it, it just basically opens a million other doors of things that you don't know. What science is, is a method, a way of asking questions that strives to remove all preconceptions about what the answers are going to be. Here's Dr. Robert Tai, Associate Professor of Science Education at the University of Virginia. When we look at how people go about discovering things about our world, that's really what science is. It's the, the, the process of discovery, the process of, of vetting those discoveries, the process of learning more about how things go on in the world around us, and the process also of coming to understand it to a degree that there are things that we can actually control. And here's Dr. Philip Ortiz, Assistant Provost for STEM Education at the State University of New York, followed by Dale Hodge, a sixth-year MD-PhD student at the Albert Einstein College of Medicine in the Bronx. STEM processes is essentially the scientific method, which is essentially uh, drawing links between cause and effect, uh, the dispelling of what we might call uh, magical thinking. You know, I can create these these other explanations that don't require evidence to uh, to substantiate. And you know, and I think you know, on a really uh, fundamental level, we're dealing with antibiotic resistance. Uh, I have a good friend right now who's dealing with a bronchitis that's essentially becoming incurable because he's got a strain that uh, that's not responding to antibiotics. Well. That was entirely predictable based upon what we know about evolution by natural selection. Um, and, you know, I think that, that, that's a very simple idea that if we could help parents understand better, um, they would insist less often that their ch children became in antibiotics at every opportunity. So, you know, there's, um, you know, to help people understand those cause and effect connections is, is really what we mean by breaking the uh, magical thinking. Um, or vaccines, you know, I have friends of mine who have been said, yeah, I'll never vaccinate my kids. And I'm like, are you serious? You know, like, you know, it hits home because, you know, in, in the Bronx where, where Einstein is, we've had an outbreak of, you know, of vaccine-preventable diseases, also in northern Manhattan. So that's part of the reason why I'm also involved in outreach, because I want to be able to dispel a lot of the myths. I want to be able to have people think critically for themselves because, you know, it sounds like an annoyance, but really, you know, that... It adds up, you know, it's people's, you know, lost money, it's people's lives that are, that are being affected by this. And in the public imagination, misconceptions about what science is are coupled with deep-seated misconceptions about who scientists are. Misconceptions that seem to add up to a remarkably consistent public image of what a scientist looks like and what they do all day. Take a minute. Close your eyes and picture a scientist. What did you see? If you were to draw a picture of the scientist you just imagined, what would it look like? 
That's something we've often asked children in the Academy's after-school program to do. And the results are remarkably almost always the same. Here's Dr. Groom again. So the very first thing that we do with them is we have them do the draw a scientist activity, which is where they draw what they think a scientist looks like. And, and the kids draw a very typical scene, which is an older white man with a bow tie, bad hair, doing something ethically questionable, usually by themselves in a lab. And of course, the person they're drawing, bad hair and a bow tie, is a vision of a specific person, maybe the only real celebrity scientist in history. Presumably, all material which may be used for such purposes will be among the Almost all kids come into the program with this idea that science is done by people who look like Albert Einstein. But as iconic as Einstein is, his actual work is really very complex and difficult to understand. And so what the public seems to have done is conflated the image of Einstein with the work of every mad scientist in fiction, from Dr. Frankenstein to Lex Luthor. Troubled, egomaniacal loners creating dangerous things in hidden laboratories until the superhero bursts in to prevent them from unleashing them on the world. Fool, if this storm develops and I hope, you'll have plenty to be afraid of before the night's over. Go on, fix the electrodes. And this image is a huge problem for science. This Einstein-Frankenstein supervillain isn't someone most of us would want to hang out with. He's probably someone even fewer of us would want to be. And so if, you, if that's what you think a scientist does, and you're a middle school girl, and you don't want crazy hair, why would you want to be this person? Why would you ever want to be that person? First off, you're unqualified to be that person. Here's Dr. Julie Nadell, Genetics and Education Fellow for the American Society of Human Genetics and the National Human Genome Research Institute. My, my favorite kind of go-to about, about how people feel about scientists is if you Google science is and you let Google like autofill, you get like cool, awesome, fun. If you Google and let Google autofill scientists are, you get like liars, evil, like, and it's really negative. No, it's true. And I think that that's something that's really confusing about our field is people, I think yeah. in general, have a really positive feeling about science. They like science, it's fun, it's these experiments that they get to do when they're kids. But for some reason, the people who have dedicated our lives to doing science, we don't get the same positive rap. And so we end up with a kind of weird double backflip of a stereotype. Scientists are brilliant geniuses who do this amazing superhuman thing that's geeky and dangerous. So I'm really impressed, but I'm also afraid of them. Here's Dr. Whitney Johnson, assistant professor of mathematics at Morgan State University in Baltimore. If you say to someone, oh, I'm a math major or I study math, it's like they fall at your feet and bow down to you. And it's like, you have no idea. <laughs> We're not that great. <laughs> but. So in one sense, it's malign. People say, I can't do it, I hate it. But then they are like mystified. It's like, oh my gosh, you're a god, you can do math. I don't know. And here's Dr. Jeannie Garbarino, 
director of science outreach at the Rockefeller University here in New York. Well, so here's a story. Um, one time I was actually volunteering for the BioBus, um, which uh, most people are familiar with, but if you're not, it's basically a mobile science laboratory that brings science to schools instead of having schools bring, you know, bring their kids to science. It's just sort of this wonderful model. And we were in Washington Heights, uh, which is um, an area in northern Manhattan. And we had a classroom uh, full of, I think it was maybe second or third grade students, um, many of them first generation. Um, and this little girl, after we chatted about Daphnia and looking through microscopes, comes up to me and simply says, I had no idea that girls can be scientists. I want to be a scientist just like you. And that blew my mind. It blew my mind that it didn't even seem like a possibility to that to that you know nine-year-old child that a, being a scientist was even in the category of choices for her in the future. Here's Dr. Groom again. The first time I saw a pregnant scientist, and that was one of the reasons that I didn't go into science, was because I had never seen a pregnant scientist before. And I, the first time I saw one, I was like 25 or 26. And I was like, no one told me you could have a family and be a scientist. And here's this lady on PBS, very pregnant, you know, out at an observatory in Hawaii being a scientist. No one told me that. Here's Dr. Ido Davidesco, a postdoctoral researcher in neurology at New York University. And one thing that we try to convey is that there are many types of scientists, both men and women, different cultural backgrounds. Um, and, and I'm, I'm a scientist, but I do not work in a wet lab. I don't do classical experiments, definitely not. Nothing that involves any chemicals. Um, there are so many types of, of fields of research that you can get involved with. And students definitely are not aware of that. So I feel that that's a big challenge for us. And this wholesale misunderstanding is a huge problem. Not just for scientists, but for everyone. Because literally everything we depend on in our daily lives, the food we eat, the cars we drive, the clothes we wear, the computers we work on, the medicines that keep us healthy, they were all invented using the scientific method. Just think of all the layers of research and the thousands of different discoveries that were involved in inventing the technology required for us to record this podcast and deliver it to your ears. Someone had to invent the microphones that capture the sound of my voice, the software we use to manipulate it, the computer that software runs on, and the internet that delivers it to you. Not to mention the electricity coming out of the socket in the wall. Think of how many different discoveries went into even the materials that make up whatever device you're listening to this on. And the more distant our understanding becomes from the technology we're dependent on, the more vulnerable we become. Without scientists and mathematicians and engineers, we literally cannot make the world work the way we've gotten used to it working. Someone has to invent this stuff and build it and maintain it and improve on it. And so we need scientists, desperately. And we're eventually going to run out if huge groups of people in this country continue to see science as something scary and weird and dangerous done by people who don't look like they do or think like they do. Here's Dr. Garbarino again. If you just look at some of the data and look at the statistics and you think about 
who is getting a degree in STEM ultimately, either undergraduate or graduate, you do see that those people tend to be very homogenous in their demographics and backgrounds. Kids start losing interest in science and start losing their, um, their ability in science. And so we want to help make sure that those kids don't fall through the cracks because they have some perception of what science is or what scientists do or who scientists are that are not actually representative of the actual system. But we also need a public that has an understanding of science and what it is and how it works. Because science can't continue unless we all come together to support it. Here's Dr. Tai, followed by Dr. Nadell. It's really essential for scientists, people who do science, to make science accessible to everyday people so that they can understand what kind of contributions that science is making on a daily basis. You know, because science is so heavily dependent on public support for what happens in the laboratory. There's major agencies around uh, the world, and especially in the United States, that fund bench scientists doing things that have a direct impact on everyday Americans. And what needs to happen is that there needs to be a connection between what the scientists are doing and what individuals, everyday people, understand about what is happening in the laboratories. It shouldn't be a mystery is we get to look and understand these questions of the natural world that everyone else looks at and just sort of takes in without questioning. And the questioning and the finding the answers and finding how the equations that you're doing in math class are also real life examples of how things are working, that's what I want to share with everyone. I want everyone to have that glimpse into why the world works that way and how you can ask questions to figure out even more. What we really want people to be learning is how to be critically assessing this information and I think in that way being a responsible citizen, looking at the information that's being given to them by politicians, by interest groups, by scientists and saying, do I believe what they're telling me and what questions can I be asking on my own and what are reliable sources of information that I can go to to make my own conclusions about this. But why is it a mystery to begin with? What causes this disconnect between science and the public at large? Why do so many people have a mental image of science and scientists that is so different from reality? This podcast is the first in a three-part series about the way scientists communicate with the outside world, in the media, in classrooms, and in their everyday lives, and how some of the programming here at the Academy, specifically our mentoring program, which places real working scientists in elementary and middle school classrooms, is working to improve that communication and give children a lifelong understanding of how science actually works and why it's important in their lives. In this series, we're going to talk about how science is taught in schools and how that can support or dispel these kind of systematic misconceptions, and also look in detail at a terrific after-school program started by the Academy that brings real working scientists together with school children in a dynamic and mutually beneficial way. But first, let's ask a tough question. Is any of this misunderstanding self-inflicted? Is there something about the way scientists present themselves and talk about their work that's preventing them from coming across to the public the way that they would like? It's an old and persistent cliche that scientists speak their own language. 
a mixture of jargon and gobbledygook that no one without a PhD stands any chance of understanding. Of a transmission that would not only supply inverse reactive current for use in unilateral phase detractors, but would also be capable of automatically synchronizing cardinal grammeters. Such an instrument is the turboencabulator. Now, basically, the only new principle involved is that instead of power being generated by the relative motion of conductors and fluxes, it is produced by the modial interaction of magneto-reluctance and capacitive directance. The original machine had a base plate of pre-famulated amulite surmounted by a malleable logarithmic casing... Now, that's a piece from an old comedy routine. But the truth isn't far off. A quick scan of recent articles published in a handful of important scientific journals, in this case, Science Advances, the New England Journal of Medicine, and our own Annals of the New York Academy of Sciences, yielded titles like Controlled Deformation of Vesicles by Flexible Structured Media, Randomized Trial of Thymectomy in Myasthenia Gravis, Reorganization of Hydrogen Bond Network Makes Strong Pyroelectrolyte Brushes pH Responsive, and my personal favorite, and please forgive me for mispronouncing, I'm sure, most of this, thrombopoietin induces hematopoiesis from mouse ES cells via HIF-1-alpha-dependent activation of a BMP4 autoregulatory loop. Here's Christian Breton, director of education here at the Academy. You know, there's this stereotype of uh, a young person who's really excited about their lab work. And within 30 seconds, they're using terms that you're frankly unfamiliar with. And so I, you know, I've grown accustomed to asking people to pause and reframe that in a way that somebody who's not in their lab can understand. And some of them can do that. And some of them have a real hard time doing that. And in fairness, there are good reasons for the use of this kind of dense language. Scientific experiments are often measured in microscopic increments. And scientists are trained right from the beginning to be as specific as they possibly can be. Those crazy jargony terms exist because they're needed for accurately describing little tiny pieces of huge complex systems. And while this might be a good thing for writing a scientific paper, it often leaves scientists without the words to describe their work to someone who doesn't have a grounding in their field. They just genuinely don't know how to do it. It's not at all uncommon for technical descriptions like those to be unintelligible even to other scientists who work in different fields. A neurobiologist is going to have a hard time working her way through an astrophysics journal, and vice versa. And unfortunately, this not only puts the real work of science out of the reach of most people, it can also lead to a kind of preemptory self-deprecation when a scientist speaks to a non-scientist. If someone asks them about their work, they'll sometimes answer by saying, oh, you know, a bunch of nerdy stuff, you wouldn't be interested. Because that's easier than a pile of technical terms that the person they're talking to wouldn't understand anyway. Here's Dr. Garbarino, followed by Dr. Nadell. Scientists just don't know how to communicate it. And so therefore, they'll just default to the, it's too weird, it's too geeky, you may not be interested, right? My training is in lipids, like storage of lipids, recycling, transport, all inside of a cell. And for me to 
tell my family when they would ask what I was doing. I did that. I'm like, yeah, you know, it's just like stuff. It's not, you know, what? Oh, no, oh, look, something shiny, you know, and try to divert the conversation into something else. And it's because I was not comfortable saying what I did to people because I didn't know how to do it in a way that was um, clear and easily easy to understand. And then also that was not condescending. I would say it probably comes from a lot of rejection, from a lot of trying to talk about something that you find to be really exciting and people shutting down. Like, okay, yeah, yeah, yeah. I, I don't understand the words that you're saying. That's not interesting to me. Are you even speaking English? I think that if you asked me what I did, I w what, what my thesis research was on, I would do that same thing. I studied a nucleic acid structure that there's no reason for you to care about. And this is me being a terrible science communicator because I should be able to give you that spiel. So maybe this is a place to start. Give scientists better tools for clearly and engagingly talking about their work so it doesn't seem so distant and scary to the public at large. Here's Dr. Mona Karami, who studies thermal engineering at Texas A&M Galveston. If there is not necessarily, somehow I teach them because they don't teach us in grad school, they don't teach us even in high school, any level. Like it's, if they never tell you that you have to be able to like, just simplify what is complicated idea you have to tell people. Just tell also people how you live your life. It's not always you have this crazy hair over there or lab coat or just you don't have normal life. You know, just if they teach them somehow. Here's Dr. Tai. What it is, it's a process of understanding how to get your point across. It's about listening to questions that people have and thinking really hard about them. And then, over time, getting better and better at explaining it. I think that the public asking questions and the scientists taking those questions seriously and responding to them, I think that making a bridge between what scientists are doing and what the public understands what they're doing is absolutely essential. And this isn't just about improving the lines of communication between science and the public in a general, wouldn't it be nice kind of way. Inability to effectively communicate about their work can have immediate and dire consequences for a researcher. Because another group of people who won't necessarily speak the same language are their funders. The people in government or academia or industry who are providing the resources to make their work possible. Having congressmen who are afraid of science is not just a philosophical problem for scientists. When there's a tight budget, be it in Washington, D.C., or at a state level or any other level, and people are trying to decide what's important and what should be funded, the scientists need to make very, very clear to people how important the work is that they're doing in order to maintain the funding stream that allows them to do their work. The scientists need to realize this and get their story out. Here's Dr. Ortiz. The core of being a bench scientist is, is making sure that you can fund your research. Um, and part of funding your research is being able to share the ideas that you're developing in the laboratory with funding agencies or with uh, the angel investor or with um, your department chair or with your students. And so I think those basic communication skills really play out in a lot of different ways. And an implication of all of this is that sometimes research projects get the support they need not because the researcher has the best idea or is doing the best science, but because he or she is doing the best job of talking about it, constructing a narrative about their work that's attractive to funders. Researchers don't like to think about marketing as a part of their job description, but it's a real issue that can't be ignored. Here's Dr. Nadell. 
You don't know who's going to be making the huge groundbreaking discoveries in science. You don't know who's going to be discovering CRISPR. You don't know who's going to be doing all of these huge things. And when that person isn't a great communicator, things can go badly. Fortunately, a lot of times they are good communicators, but a lot of times these bench scientists are thrown into a situation where they have to communicate with the general public. They have to be doing congressional briefings. They have to be the face and representation of this science, and if they have no experience trying to reach the general public with what they're talking about, they're not gonna be good at it. And this training needs to understand that as we heard at the beginning of this episode, Scientists are often starting from a place of weakness in this conversation. It may come from misunderstandings, but that doesn't make the mistrust that many people have of science and scientists any less real. It's a fact that has to be respected if it's going to be overcome. Here's Dr. Garbarino again. So if we want people to question things, but then we get upset that they question scientific findings, I mean, isn't that a problem on our part? Doesn't that mean that we have to do something to explain it better to people so that they can better understand the information and and not just jump to the conclusion that our work is wrong and what they've heard elsewhere is right? Because they're, they're already skeptical. You know, if you're not gonna explain it in a way that's accessible um, and in a way that's not condescending, then yeah, they're gonna question it. And rightly so. I think that's, isn't that what we want people to do is to question it? We need to think about it in ways that also take into consideration people's cultural backgrounds, their social backgrounds, their, their moral viewpoints, their religious ideals. And these are important aspects. And, and I think we don't take that into consideration enough when we start trying to talk about science to people. In the next episode of this series, we're going to hear how scientists and science educators are working to give people a better understanding of science right from the beginning by addressing the way that science is taught in school. Thanks for listening to the podcast of the New York Academy of Sciences. This episode was written and produced by your host, David Hoffman, with the assistance of Carrie Caston and administrative and scientific oversight by Dr. Megan Groom and Christian Breton. Special thanks to the other experts who appeared in it, Dr. Robert Tai of the University of Virginia, Dr. Philip Ortiz of the State University of New York, Dale Hodge of the Albert Einstein College of Medicine, Dr. Julie Nadell of the National Human Genome Research Institute, Dr. Jeannie Garbarino of Rockefeller University, and Dr. Mona Karami of Texas A&M University. For more information about the Academy and its events, as well as to listen to other podcasts, please visit www.nyas.org. You can also subscribe to our podcast on iTunes and follow us on social media at NYA Sciences on Twitter or the New York Academy of Sciences on Facebook and LinkedIn. If you've enjoyed this podcast, please consider becoming a member of the New York Academy of Sciences, where brilliant minds come together to spark innovative solutions to global challenges.